Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's talk a little technology. Let's talk Apple. Let's talk Uber. And who better to do that with than Dan Ives. Dan's a managing director for equity research at Wedbush Securities. Uh, really one of our go-to voices on all things technology. Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. Interesting news. I just kind of read a news story uh, just a couple of minutes ago about Apple talking about bundling some of their services here. What can you tell us about what's actually going on with Apple and some of their services businesses, which are a key to the future of this company? Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head in terms of services being so significant. That's a $60 billion revenue stream next year. And I think the bundling is just a massively smart move by Cook and Cupertino. I think ultimately this could increase services revenues by another 5 to 7%. In terms of it's all about monetizing that golden install base, that's what Apple is doing. In a very similar in many ways what Amazon's done with the Amazon Prime. What will they look like? Because as I understand it, you know, some of them are kind of bundled already. No, you get like three free months of this if you, you know, if you're subscribed to that. And, you know, maybe not exactly monthly bundling, but something similar. Yeah, I think this is really, take a step back if you think about gaming, music, ultimately video, you know, Apple TV Plus, you know, as well as potentially iCloud and some other package uh, services in there. I mean, as they've continued to expand w- their offerings, they they have more content to sell, and I think that's just going to increase over time. And what this is really doing, it's putting really more of a fence around their backyard, just monetizing that install base, and, and ultimately pricing it at points where maybe a consumer was not going to go for one or two of the bundles like an Apple News. Now they will, and especially in a pandemic backdrop with the work from home and many. Uh, you know, continuing to, to kind of access things remotely. This is, I think, the right move at the right time for them. Hey, Dan, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about just the gig economy writ large. We Again, we got some jobless numbers today, but thinking about Uber and California, um, California's talking about, I guess, reclassifying some of those gig workers like at Uber and Lyft, the drivers, into employees. This is a fundamental risk to these companies, isn't it? It's not just a black cloud. It's really a future business model risk to the overall gig economy with Uber and Lyft front and center. And it continues to be a head scratcher for many. Uh, you know, if you, many of the drivers that we've talked to, you know, even over the last year, they don't want to be employees. That's why they work for Uber. Uber itself, if they ever had to reclassify them, that could be upwards of four to five hundred million of incremental costs per year. Obviously, they're going to fight it through the court system as well as in the ballot box. But the fear is, is that in terms of what California is doing, it's a Pandora's box situation where other states and cities will file. Right now, we think the bark's worse than the bite. But if this continues down the road, you know, ultimately, Uber, that's why they might have to temporarily get out of California. It's fascinating. Will it be a precedent for other companies, you think? Well, I think when you think about gig economy, that's the worry because it starts at Uber and Lyft. And there's a cascading impact. And I think there's a lot of unintended consequences here, which is part of the big worry as California has gone down this head-scratching route. And 
when you think about the gig economy, you're talking about something that's created millions of jobs. And, and now many of them could be at risk, even on the contractor employee debate. And that continues to be a frustration, not just for the companies, but obviously for investors, as right now that continues to be the major risk around these names. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I guess the, the argument there is clearly, hey, these folks are working, but they're not getting benefits, for example. What's the, what's the argument from uh, you know, the Ubers and Lyfts and the other gig companies? The argument is if an employee in, in the state of California's eyes that wants to work 10 hours a week, what do they do? In other words, many of them like the flexible schedule. It might be a second job. It might be extra income. Uh, for a student that's looking to, to save money for college. So I think the frustration from their perspective is the flexibility is the, the nature of the driver model. And most drivers do not want that. And that's, that's ultimately at the heart of the gig economy, which is why this is such a bewildering issue. Of course, at a time in a once in a hundred year pandemic where the gig economy, we believe based on our survey work, 30% of consumers will not get into an Uber or a Lyft to a vaccine found just given safety issues. Wow. Will there be consolidation among some of these types of companies, you know, Uber, Lyft, and of course you have other companies in the gig economy competing too? I mean, I think you will start to see some consolidation on the smaller side. Uber and Lyft, I think they go about it alone. That's why profitability is so important. And mm -hmm. that's what Lyft talked about yesterday. But right now, it's a Herculean uphill battle for many of these companies as they get through this environment. I do believe on the other side, they will be able to navigate. But for right now, this continues to be just a massive headwind that they're facing. Dan, before we go, I have one question for you. Of all of your companies in your coverage universe, the only underperform you have is on Slack technologies, which I would have thought might have been doing pretty okay in this environment. Why underperform on Slack? A great company, obviously a work-from-home name. Our biggest issue with Slack is the stocks had a great run. I just think with Microsoft and Redmond and Teams, that's going to be a very difficult market for them to further penetrate. They go after Microsoft. A great company, it just comes down to is a great company, a great stock at this valuation. That's why we're cautious at Slack at these levels. I hear that. All right, Dan, thank you. And thanks for uh, being so open about that particular question. Much appreciated. Dan Ives, equity analyst at Wedbush Securities, joining us. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. And for that now, we bring in one of our favorite opinion columnists, Neil Ferguson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And of course, Bloomberg columnist, among many, many other roles that he plays in society and has played over the years in academia and elsewhere. His latest column is TikTok is a super weapon in China's culture war. Neil, thanks for joining. I want to read out the first couple of lines of your column. It's hard to get past the initial sheer inanity of TikTok. I spent a half an hour trying to make sense of the endless feed of video snippets of ordinary people doing daft things with their dogs or in their kitchens or in the gym. That's the background. If TikTok is so inane, how has it become such a cultural lever in the sense that it's mobilized K-pop fans to register for Donald Trump's Tulsa rally? It's been a pandemic favorite. And suddenly, as you say, it's now got something to do with Cold War two. That's right. Well, my initial reaction, as you can tell from the opening of the column, was give me a break. This is, uh, is not serious. I, I, did some, uh, I did some thorough research as a middle-aged man should when confronted with an app popular with the young. I asked my 
my kids and uh, I got some interesting feedback. My eight-year-old son said, hey, check out the dancing weasel. Uh, but my 21-year-old son said, whoa, it's, uh, it's toxic. I don't go near it. And that was uh, an interesting clue. I think the key here is to recognize that this is a Chinese-owned app powered by artificial intelligence that is incredibly appealing and uh, indeed addictive to teenagers. And half of American teenagers have used TikTok, 50%. When they use it, what they're doing is essentially providing uh, the app with data. And the app also looks for other data about them. It doesn't just sit there passively. We know from uh, other reports that, uh, that TikTok uh, is pretty good, rather like Facebook, at getting data about users from any source it can online. And so the key argument here is that we've essentially created a portal are allowed to be created, a portal through which young Americans provide all kinds of personal data, potentially uh, embarrassing, even compromising data to a Chinese-controlled app. And the critical point is that TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, ByteDance, and any Chinese internet company is legally obliged to make data, all data, available to the Chinese government. That is the Chinese Communist Party. And that's why this apparently silly, trivial app actually is a problem and we can't simply let it carry on the way it is which is uh, essentially becoming the most popular app amongst amongst young americans so neil I, I believe tiktok's response would be hey all of the data is on servers none of those servers are in china um is that a valid kind of response no, it's not, because it doesn't really matter where the servers are. If, uh, if Xi Jinping calls up uh, and says, hey, uh, we want to check out uh, data on X, uh, because ByteDance is compelled by Chinese law to, to, to comply, then there, there, would be no, there would be no way of their uh, saying no. I mean, I think, to be fair, Zhang Yiming, who is the founder of ByteDance and who had the vision to see TikTok's potential, you know, he gets a lot of credit as an entrepreneur and visionary. Facebook failed to make an app as good as this. Facebook was trying to get video right, and it missed the key point, which is that if you just let uh, users do the content and let the AI pick the best content, you'll crush it. So you've got to give him credit as an entrepreneur, and you should give him credit also because I don't think personally he is uh, an authoritarian, but the, the reality is He's a Chinese citizen. It's a Chinese company. The Chinese Communist Party wants the data. It doesn't matter where the servers are. And by the way, you know, TikTok says in its user agreement that uh, if you hand over data, uh, then its parent company, ByteDance, will have access to the data. So they are open about that. And that, I think, is the crux of the matter. Although, as you say, buddy, you know, this has to be seen in a broader context. I think I would be less exercised about all this if it wasn't for the fact that we know China is now engaged in a pretty active campaign online and offline to exert influence uh, in American culture, really the way the Russians did back in 2016. And we've seen active efforts by the Chinese government on Twitter, on other platforms, to sow disinformation about COVID-19. So this has to be seen in that context. It's not as if the Chinese government is playing no uh, part in our culture war. Mm -hmm. It is actively involved in trying to sow uh, disinformation in American public discourse.
Neil, we finally have a ticket, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. If that turns out to be the next, you know, inhabitants of the White House and uh, the Oval Office and, you know, various wings of the West, of the West Wing and East Wing and so and what have you, what happens with the China relationship? Well, I think from the vantage point of, of China, a Biden presidency has become a lot more appealing than a continuation of the Trump presidency. Because although Donald Trump started off trying to have a close personal relationship with Xi Jinping, since the trade war started in 2018, things have gone rapidly downhill. And I, I argued at the beginning of, uh, of last year that we were in Cold War II and we should you know, stop kidding ourselves. So I think from the Chinese vantage point, they just want to get through to November 3rd and hope that, uh, that they get an altogether uh, less hawkish president. Kamala Harris is an interesting pick for Biden. Uh, I think from the vantage point of the tech uh, sector, it's a kind of sigh of relief because although she's been known for her pretty aggressive questioning on congressional committees, in truth, I think she is as friendly a, a vice presidential candidate as Silicon Valley could have hoped for. So from that point of view, I think the risk of aggressive antitrust uh, and other actions probably goes down if Biden-Harris is the winning ticket. Neil, we just had the president call reporters into the Oval Office and we'll likely be hearing from him in a few moments, but there is a headline now that there is a, an historic deal to normalise relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. I'm curious as to your thoughts about how the Middle East will be reshaped, if at all, given uh, that Israel has this new uh, normalised relationship, apparently, with the United Arab Emirates. Well, this has been uh, kind of cooking quietly for a while. Most attention has been elsewhere. And of course, uh, substantial sections of the media are skeptical about the president's Middle East policy and have been from the very outset. But in reality, there's been a massive realignment in the region in the last three and a half years. Uh, and I think the Trump administration has done something at least to to contribute to that. The main alignment being that a whole bunch of Arab countries led by the UAE have been looking to normalize relations uh, with Israel and focus uh, regional uh, security policy on Iran, which poses a threat not only to Israel, but to, to Sunni uh, majority states. So I think this is important. And I think it actually is, is a success for President Trump. They don't expect to read that in the New York Times or the Washington Post this week. No. Neil Ferguson, senior fellow at Hoover uh, Institution and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. AMC right there, reopening, and it's been a big story this morning. Mark Lazary the other day talking about how he was looking at AMC's secured debt, and that's what I want to start with when I bring in Sally Bakewell, who's a corporate finance reporter, because one of her stories in the last couple of days, most of America is being shut out of the greatest borrowing binge ever. And this is why Mark Lazary is looking at the types of things like AMC's secured debt. Sally, tell us what exactly you mean by the fact that many, many great companies are actually not able to borrow these days. Hi, Tony. Yeah, AMC is actually a really great example that you bring up there because like a number of companies, airlines, hotels, cruise lines, it's been absolutely devastated or it had been devastated by the virus. The virus, of course, wiped out the revenue of it and many consumer-facing companies. Um, and what they've been able to do, however, because they're big companies that can tap the bond market, is go straight there. And they've found willing investors to buy debt because 
the debt markets have effectively been backstopped by the vast kind of Federal Reserve guerrilla um, and its pledge to use its near limitless balance sheet to buy corporate bonds. And so that has enabled all these companies kind of almost without too much discrimination, all of them have been able to hit the bond market. And we saw another fantastic example of the kind of limitless um, nature of it today with Apple, um, which is, of course, a, a of a great blue chip company that would lenders would fall over themselves to lend to, but it's it's in the same group of big companies. They can hit the bond market bond market no matter what. Um, but on the other side of that, that kind of tremendous liquidity opportunity is not mirrored for smaller firms, and so that's Sally, where we're getting the fact that they're missing out. Yeah. So Sally, the smaller firms, mid-sized firms, they depend. Uh, less on the capital markets, more on their local banks. Are, are, are bank lenders, I, I guess they're being prudent and saying, boy, in this pandemic, I got to be tighter on my credit standards. Uh, is that kind of what's happening here? Absolutely. That's what's happening. Um, there was a recent loan officer survey of um, some of the biggest banks where they found that loans have been tightening um, at the fastest pace or at the most since at least the financial crisis and prices have gone up too. So for smaller companies, they can't access the bond market where this enormous amount of liquidity is swashing around. Um, and it's harder for them to get loans now. On the flip side, the Federal Reserve um, has come up with these other lending programs. It has the Main Street lending program. It has the Paycheck Protection Program. But those have drawn criticism for being quite difficult to access for being complex. And actually, Paul, you raised that point. Banks don't necessarily want to be involved in them because they don't feel that they're being compensated for the risk of lending to companies that potentially you don't know if they will be around in the next year. Sally, what happens to these companies? You just said they may not be around in the next year, but there are also options like, for example, going to quote-unquote vulture investors, right? Yeah, and that is another world um, that we are seeing varying degrees of activity. Um, of course, there are all the direct lenders. There are the distressed funds. Um, to varying degrees, they are jumping in at opportunities. But, you know, that comes at a price, too. <laughs> so it's, it's, there is money there, but you probably have to pay up for it. Um, and But a lot of firms, a lot of investors are definitely seizing on on that opportunity as other lenders retrench. So, Sally, this kind of calls into question again the, the role of the bank, the local bank. This is the time when their customers really need them. What do the banks say? They are, I think they're a bit tied because, of course, they have to be more risk averse. They are building up their loss provisions because they know what, well, they know that we don't know um, what exactly is down the road. And after the last financial crisis, which they were the epicenter of, they of course um, have become a lot more risk averse. Um, but then they are under this kind of pressure from the Federal Reserve too, which is trying to coax them to lend to these small and medium-sized firms, which is so important to the economy. And of course, you know, it, it's important for banks too that those firms 
thrive. Um, but I think, you know, when I was talking to people for this story, um, they said, you know, if you're a good customer um, without yeah. too much risk, you know, people might, banks don't necessarily want to lend to you. Anyway, you know, they want to get the, the fees, they want to get um, right. the, the sort of, in, in, you know, high interest rates. So, I, you know, they're in a tight spot for sure. Yeah, exactly. Sally Bakewell, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate a fascinating story here. Again, big companies like Apple and so on, barring at historically low rates, but a lot of small and mid-sized businesses really finding it hard to get credit here uh, in this pandemic. So fascinating story. Sally Bakewell, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Well, it is going to be a slightly different back-to-school retail season this year, if it exists at all. Let's ask somebody who has been following this and presumably has some data and at least much, much better informed about what's going on out there than me. Arthur Zakowitz is Women's Wear Daily Executive Editor. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. What are you seeing this August as we you know, approach what would have been a new school year? Well, uh, well, thanks for having me first. Uh, you know, I think what we're seeing is a lot of uncertainty and caution, right? So the National Retail Federation uh, put out some, uh, you know, kind of estimates on back to school, and they're looking at almost $34 billion uh, in back to school sales versus $26 billion last year. And, and the bulk, bulk of that is, is about $10 billion in online sales. But, you know, honestly, I, you know, I think that's uh, kind of magical thinking given, you know, what's occurring in the market right now. Yeah, Arthur, I mean, do we even have a sense of, what percentage of K through 12 students in the U.S. will actually be going back physically to school as opposed to remote learning yet again? I know some parts of the South and the West have actually, they have gone back to school, but do we have a sense of what percentage nationwide? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. that. That's a great question. I know that, the, you know, there are plans in place in, in certain states, Say, you know, like New York, for example, has three different uh, scenarios, you know, with many of the schools, and they just decided you know, a couple of school districts in uh, in the Hudson Valley, for example, just decided to uh, do online only. So we don't really know. And that's part of the uncertainty, uh, I think, that, you know, you're seeing. Plus, you know, we heard, I, I think, uh, Newell Rubbermaid, uh, excuse me, Newell Brands uh, said that they're a little um, you know, cautious because the consumer is cautious. And, this, you know, as far as like what to buy in the shopping list, haven't even come through for a lot of uh, school districts across the country. So there's uncertainty, again, uh, in the market. What brands are you hearing from that are very concerned about their future, Arthur? Well, I, I think, um, you know, we've seen a lot of retail bankruptcies, obviously. You know, it seems like every other day there's a, another retailer going out of business. And, and what's driving that is, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, online uh, sales and a reluctance by consumers to go into uh, physical stores. But, you know, as far as like who's going to you know play out the best uh, uh, through the holidays and through, you know, back to school, uh, I think Target is, is well positioned, right? That's that sort of that one-stop shop, you know, that mom is, feels comfortable, you know, getting uh, essentials, getting food, getting, you know, apparel, getting gifts. Uh, you know, they could go in and out in a relatively, you know, safe environment that they're familiar with. But, you know, everyone else, this is a, a challenging time. You know, if, if you're not you know, a brand that has a real strong connection to uh, the consumer, uh, you, you're going to have difficulties, I think, moving forward. You know, I, I think, look, look at Walmart. Recently, they lowered their guidance based on the uncertainty of back to school. Uh, so, you know, it's it's unclear as far as, you know, how this plays out in the future. Also, you know, there's an interesting thing going on, right? We have the, an election year, uh, which is, creates uncertainty, right? We have the pandemic, which is ongoing, uh, we have we're in a recession, right? And then we have consumer anxiety on top of that. So, you know, it's a it's a 
perfect storm for um, creating uh, shoppers who maybe want to be more frugal and pull back on spending. So, Arthur, what are parents actually going to be buying here in this back-to-school? Is it just, you know, masks and wipes and hand sanitizer? Sure, because, you know, safety is first, right? So for the kids going back, you know, so safety items. Uh, and you got to carry that stuff in something. So I think backpacks, you know, you'll, you'll see, you know, those traditional uh, categories plus just regular school supplies. You know, as far as apparel is concerned, you know, kids – you know, if you're going physically back to school, they tend that tends to come later. You know, they, they kind of go into school and they, they look, you know, to see what everybody else is wearing and what the trends are. And then they come back and, and you know, take mom, uh, you know, either while online uh, mostly and say, I want this, this and that. You know, and there's there's some really interesting stuff going on right now, uh, you know, as far as like tweens. You know, I think Pop Sugar is, is teamed up with Old Navy. That's interesting. Um Oshkosh Bagash is that you know that the the, the overall company right so they they're celebrating 125 years and they're launching a collection actually um, to re you know they used to uh, have adult stuff right so now they reintroduce that so the whole family could wear you know co- uh, you know coveralls so that that's interesting and fun but you know um, as far as like the staples are concerned as far as like apparel you know I think you'll see Nike and um, you know and brands that that offer active wear. Uh, and essentials too, like you know, shopping on Target, for example, you'll see printed T-shirts. Uh, as far as uh, you know, from any brand, really doing well. What about the luxury brands? I mean, you know, and this wouldn't just be for luxury customers. I mean, sure. plenty of youngsters out there, you know, save all year just to buy their Yeezys or what have you. You know, the, the next drop. Will there still be drops for brands like that? I, I think so. I think that that's going to be a challenge um, because of all this uncertainty. It's kind of a clouded market, and it's everybody's getting bombarded, right? So, so think think about you. You spent since last spring, you know, hold up in, in your home with your family. Uh, you've been bombarded with you know a lot of uh, direct to consumer marketing from brands themselves. So, so how do you cut through the clutter? You know, and the luxury brands, you know, do that. They have their loyal following, but you know, there's a lot of research out there uh, just recently from. Uh, you know, uh, Deloitte and other companies, Adobe, that uh, kind of shows that that shoppers, particularly you know Gen Z and millennials, are, right. are have tried new brands during COVID, right? So they they're moving away. So there's a little bit less loyalty, and because they're stuck at they were stuck at home, right. they were like, oh, I'll give that a shot. So if you're a luxury brand and you're used to that, yep, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts into the retail space. Arthur Zekowitz, executive editor, Women's Wear Daily, giving us his thoughts. Back to school, really key for retailers. A lot of uncertainty this year. We'll see how it plays out for the retail space. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.